0: Good morning. My name is Sharon Townsend, and I'm involved in a uh, life group and women's Bible study and just a few other things here and there. <laughs> this morning, I am reading Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years was ended, sorry, are ended, Satan Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the city and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil, who had deceived them, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire.
1: So alluded to it last week that as we're continuing our series through the book of Revelation, we find ourselves in what is... uh, potentially the most hotly contested and debated chapter of the entire Bible amongst Christians. And it's, and it's all with how do we deal with the, this 1,000-year period. But before we get into any of the details, into any of the options, I, I think it's really important that we understand the flow of this entire chapter. That's why I'm so grateful Sharon read the entire thing, so that we can understand what's going on in the context, so we can see what is the outline of this chapter. So it starts with. The binding of Satan—that by Jesus' power, Satan, which uh, John makes it very clear who he's talking about, that ancient devil, uh, that ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. There's no guessing about who is this that he's mentioning. Every name possible is used here, but Satan is bound; that is, he's limited in his ability to influence and tempt the nations astray from from God. And this is a period. Uh, this binding period we're told lasts for a thousand years. During that same time, Christians are raised back to life, reigning with Christ, acting as priests over this this uh, world. Following the thousand years, Satan is released and gathers people to himself, amassing against God. And we find that this is the final judgment of Satan and those who are not aligned with Christ. That those who have turned away from him find, uh, are, are uh, responded to with this earned eternal punishment. The alternative to that, and this is dipping a little bit into chapter one, but we got to get some of that good news back into this chapter as well. The alternative to that, those who remained faithful, we hear of the eternal rejoicing of those whose names are written in the book of life. So that's the flow of this chapter. That's the outline of what's going on in in Revelation chapter 20. But the debate comes, the conflict between Christians comes when we ask the question of when are these thousand years of Christians reigning with Jesus? So this period that's referred to just simply as the millennium. When does this take place? This thousand year period, when does this occur? And maybe for some of us in here, there is no debate. We know how we would answer that question and that's fantastic. Others in here, we very much so feel that debate. We don't know how we answer this question. So there's been some internal strife within us. Others, you found out approximately three minutes ago that there's a debate on this. And that's great. And still more wonder, what even is the purpose of these arguments? Why does any of this matter anyways? So a couple just general things to say before we dive into our response to this question is, first and foremost, that God has chosen to reveal himself in this way. That he's chosen to include in his written word, in this book that's so focused on on comfort and how we live our lives now, he's chosen to reveal himself in this way. And we should cherish anything that God tells us about who he is and what his plans are. Uh, Second, uh, this is important because how we understand this chapter actually shapes how we understand the rest of Revelation, what it is we're expecting to happen. So it's important, but it's not so important that we divide over it because we understand that reading Revelation in general is difficult, let alone this chapter. We understand that we're called as Christians above anything else to be one, I, I, I like that we just sang in this, this song about Advent uh, uh, that all divisions cease. And it, the reason why all divisions cease is because of what we see God is going to do. Why are we dividing over the things that are supposed to bring us together? But more than anything else, what we, we see, the importance of this, is, is that this is shaping how we are to live. So, final thing that, that I'm going to give to us is my my role up here is not to give a lecture on Revelation 20. I want to help us. I'm going to preach this passage, which is to look at what is God doing, and how then does that shape our lives? We'll look at the broad strokes of how different people respond to this passage, but the primary focus is what is God doing? How do we live in light of that? So the question that's asked is, when are these thousand years taking place? And there's three primary ways that Christians have answered that question. Uh, The first response is, is uh, looking at that outline that we gave, the flow of thoughts for the passage and seeing that as, as the way to shape our understanding of this. So uh, some people hold to, we read in Revelation 19, Jesus comes back and then in Revelation 20 is this millennium, this thousand year period. And so it'd be saying that Jesus returns before the millennium. The, the, the name for this belief would be premillennialism. So Jesus returns pre or before the millennium. D- don't get bogged down in these names. I, I'm only using them because you might have heard them or maybe you will hear them. I want to associate just a really simple definition with the names that are used. So Jesus returns before or pre the millennium pre uh, The second option is kind of the opposite of that. And the idea here is that there's this period of triumph that will take place, or some people would say is currently taking place, where the gospel is going out, the people are being saved around the world, and this will bring in the millennium. So this is happening, uh, the, the millennium is, is going to happen, or sorry, Jesus is gonna return after the millennium, so post-millennialism. And, and where this thinking comes from is we're told about how uh, the, the gospel's going out, that uh, even there, there's promises that the whole world will hear of, of, uh, of Jesus, and so they would say that this needs to happen before Jesus would return. The other option is what's called amillennialism. And if you talk to someone who's an amillennialist, uh, the first thing that they would say to you, well, is probably hello. But following that, without fail, uh, amillennialists will always say, this is a bad name. Because it sounds like there's not a millennium in that view, right? When we think of like with is put in front of it, it's saying there's not something. So, I mean, checkmate all millennials. It says right here, millennium is happening. And they would say that's not the case. There is a millennium. We're just in it right now. And so the idea is that, that uh, G- uh, Satan being bound, so not, uh, not inactive, but limited in what he could do, that the power that, that's happening in Christians, that this raising to life is our spiritual raising to life, those are all happening ever since Jesus' death and resurrection. And so those are the three main ways that people would answer the question as to when are these thousand years? At risk of making a little bit more complex, I, I want to I give just a little bit more of an answer because one of the options up there has kind of two distinct camps of, of how to answer this question. So I know, bear with me, this is, is sounding a little bit more complex than I wanted it to, to sound like and, and a little bit conspiracy theorist, but uh, I, I want to just help us to understand what how people respond to this passage. So, one of the options, premillennial, has two distinct camps that fit within it. One is to say, and this is what's called classic or historic premillennialism, and this is that Jesus comes and immediately brings his followers to himself and then immediately returns to earth to start the millennium. This is what's called classic or historic premillennialism. The other option is that, uh, and, it's, and it's trying to hold uh, parts of Revelation as distinct events. And so uh, it's, it's a view that's trying to capture all uh, of, of uh, what's being said throughout the book to hold them as distinct events. And it's that Jesus returns, but not to earth. It's, it's uh, like a, a secret or private return in which he brings his followers, removes his followers from the earth to himself for a period of seven years. And this seven years is what's called in Revelation, the great tribulation. It includes events that we've seen all throughout. So uh, the beast coming from the sea, the false prophet, God's wrath on the earth. God is removing his people from experiencing any of that. After the great tribulation, he then, Jesus returns with his followers to the earth to start the millennium. So all of these different views here, uh, sorry, I forgot to say, this one is called uh, dispensational premillennialism, premillennialism. and it's the most complex name that we have. The idea is that there's different dispensations or orders of times that God is working throughout this. All of these different views, which one is the correct one? You know, I'm not particularly interested in that question. And uh, the, the reason for that is so many strong and good Christians have held to all of these different views throughout church history. Even if you try to look at, okay, so which which one is, is the best fit from church history? Uh, which one have other Christians held to that I should hold to instead? I mean, all of them. You look at when the church is doing really well. I mean, postmillennialism is thriving in those times because it's this time of triumph. When the church is suffering, it's premillennialism. We are waiting for Jesus to return to usher in something good. You look at uh, the earliest people in church history. They've held to uh, historic premillennialism. Did you wonder how we got the name historic? It's the earliest views that we have from the church. But the most held view in terms of years is probably amillennialism, going from Augustine in the 5th century to, I don't know, 1700s, 1800s, something like that. That's a long time of people being predominantly amillennialist. But if you look at what's the most popular, at least in America right now, it's going to be dispensational pre pre-millennial, So, church history doesn't help us in figuring out what to do. And the reason why there's so many debates here, the reason why there's so much difficulty and, and why Christians have disagreed over this is because, yes, Revelation is hard to read. It's hard to understand what is going on in this passage. But more so than anything else, Revelation 20 is the only passage in Scripture that clearly speaks to this millennium period. And so we're trying to hold what is said in Revelation 20 with what is said in the whole rest of the Bible. And every single one of those four viewpoints that I've given have difficult passages to understand. They have a really, uh, uh, really challenging time explaining how this passage or this passage fits into their viewpoint. Every single one of these viewpoints is on shaky ground, which ought to drive us to seek a more firm foundation. And that is the common ground that we have together. So I want to focus our time on what is the common ground of Revelation chapter 20? What is it that we agree on? What are the clear truths that we hold to, even in the midst of difficulty of understanding what's happening? And the, the common ground is the purpose of the millennium and a tremendous truth that we find in this chapter. So first, I wanna look at the purpose of the millennium. I focused our time on these questions of what's happening in it or when is it happening, but isn't the best question that we can always ask is why? Why is this God's plan? Why is this what he has revealed in Revelation, a book so focused on giving comfort to the original audience, giving comfort to Christians in every, every age? Why is this what's revealed? And we've talked all throughout the book of Revelation about how many different numbered events there are. And we've looked at what the significance of the different numbers are. So uh, maybe, maybe think back to uh, of the different times and lengths of times and numbered times that we've seen throughout this book, especially as it re- relates to the difficulty or the persecution or the suffering that Christians are going through. A couple examples uh, that come to mind. We hear of an hour of trial. We hear as well of—I uh, have them written down because I'm losing it right now—an hour of trial. We have uh, days of of uh, tribulation, and um, I can't find it. Uh, days of tribulation, trampling that occurs for months. There even are periods of years. We're told of time and time and half time, which is three and a half years. So hour of trial, days of tribulation, trampling for months, three and a half years, all of these times that are happening, and yet the duration of this glorious reign of Jesus on the earth with his people who are raised to life, that's a number that goes beyond anything that we've seen throughout this book before. That, we are told, is a millennium, is a thousand years. I mean, I mean, yes, we are looking forward to eternity with God when we are, uh, we are his people, we know and are known by him. But think about in the midst of all the difficulty that we are told that the church is going through, this incredible truth that's promised to them. I, I mean, in no way does this diminish what, what Christians have and will experience. In no way does this diminish the difficulty that you have and will go through. But man, how much easier is it to endure the hour? or the day, or the months, knowing this thousand years of splendor. As we look at why has God revealed this this millennium to his people, how much comfort do we draw? How much endurance is possible when we know that the vindication of God's people greatly exceeds any and all difficulty that they will go through? The second bit of common ground that we have is this tremendous truth, which comes uh, from the, the last scene of this chapter, which is uh, Revelation, chapters tw- uh, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. Let me, let me reread that for us. It says, And then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone whose name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So this whole thing starts with this incredible picture, once again, of God's glory. It reminds me of chapter four. It's this chapter of God's majesty, how uncontainable he is, how otherworldly he is, how pure and holy this God is. And we see that just by God entering into this world, we see him entering in and his mere presence alone begins to remove the effects of sin on the earth. This incredible phrase that's used, from his presence, earth and sky fled away. The idea is that this, this world that we live in, it bears the marks of a world of sin. It is itself coded by, by the fall, by sin that happens in. It falls short of God's perfection, that everything around us has, has felt the, uh, the impact of sin. And that by God, by his presence, by him entering into this world, by him beginning to usher in a new kingdom, a perfect creation, his presence alone removes all that's broken and frail and fractured and old and we see that as he's coming as he's as he's bringing about a, a restoration of creation this restoration includes the pinnacle of creation which is humans That all the dead are raised, but we saw the Christians raised before, and now this is the rest of the dead. And yet we are told that uh, Paul in particular, he writes, all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And so all are being judged. And we're also told what the basis of this judgment is. It's these books that are opened. These books that contain a written record of everything that everyone has ever done. So I want you to try to picture this scene that we've seen all throughout the book of Revelation to this point, the fruitlessness of turning away from God to other things. God has demonstrated time and time again how much power and authority he has over all pretenders and alternatives to himself. We've we've seen God demonstrate time and time again his might over every enemy. How many times throughout the book of Revelation are armies amassed against God like we see here again, and yet there's not a single battle that occurs. God is victorious just by who he is, by his nature alone. We've seen God demonstrate time and time again how incomprehensibly glorious he is, that he causes people to collapse just by the mere mention of his presence, that the best picture that we have to describe him is, is sounds and, and noises and phenomena that just cause us to tremble. That is the picture of God that's received to us, and now he has brought forth on the throne all of humanity amassed before him to give an account to what they've done. Here, the ever-faithful, ever-glorious, ever-holy God is there, and every person needs to give an account of what they've done. The basis of this judgment is these books are brought out, and it contains what everyone has done. The idea is that it's, it's a written record of, of all that we've accomplished, all that we've done, all that we've thought, all that we've dreamed of. You know those, those quiet moments that we thought no one else knew of? It's in the books. Those things that we forgot that we've done or said or thought, it's in the books. Or those things that we are very much so aware of because we tend to play them on a loop on our worst days. That's in the books but it's no longer just what we know that we've done. We are now in front of this ever-holy God having to give an account of what we've done. And there's only one possible conclusion to that. As we look at this picture of God, as we look at what it is that we've done, there's only one response to this greatest of rebellions that there is. There's only one just conclusion of punishment that all those who have turned away from God by the basis of what we've done in this life as we turn and join in Satan, in death we join in him as well. This eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire forever and ever. But, and this is that tremendous truth because none of that really sounds tremendous. This is the tremendous truth. There's another book. We're told of the books that are open, which are this record of all that have done. And then there's this other book, which is called the book of life. Chapter 21 gives us a little bit more of understanding. It says it's the lambs, it's Jesus' book of life. And this is a book that's shown up all throughout the Bible. Moses talks about it. He pleads with God to not blot his name out of God's book. Jesus talks about it. He says, do not rejoice in abilities or authorities or things that we receive from Jesus, but to rejoice that our name is written in heaven. It's shown up all throughout the book of Revelation. Chapter 3, this letter is written to the church at at, uh, Smyrna, to one of the churches in chapter 3, that those who are faithful, those who conquer, their names will remain in the book of life. On the other hand, those who turn away from God, those who uh, are identified by the beasts who bear their mark on, his, uh, on their foreheads, on, on their hands, it, it is proof that their name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And in Revelation chapter 21, that those who are written in the book of life, they are the ones who enter into God's city. It's like this heavenly register that if your name is in here, it shows that your place is with God. So we have these these two books that are written. There is the books or the book. And everyone is judged according to what they've done. But those in the Lamb's book of life, they do not face that earned eternal punishment. Those who put their, their trust in Jesus, who remain faithful to him, who belong to the lamb, as all that they've done is brought out, as these books are open, as that's revealed, their name is then cross-referenced with the book of life, and if their name is in here, then all of this, every rebellion, every failure, everything that they've turned away from God on, everything that they've done that fallen short, that is all stamped completely as forgiven. That it's known, it's written right there, this record of debt is right there, and yet it's completely forgiven because Their name is in the book of life. I mean, think about how we read this passage. and It's so so difficult to understand and it's so much easier to, to have arguments over what's going on. And yet in the midst of this confusion, there's so much that is absolutely crystal clear. There's so much that is certain of the reality that is to come. And first and foremost, we rejoice in the fact that Jesus is coming back. It's what we're waiting for at Advent. It's what our greatest hope is in. It is what we, no matter where we land on, how do we understand the millennium? What's happening? When is this going to occur? What is exactly the mechanics of God bringing this in? In the midst of all that, we can at least say Jesus is coming back. It is why in our statement of faith, we, we list what is clear and what is certain and what gives us hope in this life and in the life to come in what we say we believe. Uh, let me just read that for you. This is, this is what we as a church say we believe. It says that we believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy And as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. This is the certain coming future. This is God's revelation that he has given to us that no one can stop, no one can put on hold, no one can make uh, it to be delayed or come sooner than God has perfectly planned from the foundations of the world to occur. This is what we are waiting for. This is our certain future. And yet, the other part that's uh, clear about this reality to come is we live as people who are written in the book of life. We're told that this is what is happening. This is our certain future. And yet, it's a reality that we live out of right now. As we look at this chapter, our names, the ability to be written in Jesus' book comes solely because of Jesus. Any authority that's given to Christians in this book or in this life is because of Jesus. The, any forgiveness that's given, the being made as a new creature, reconciliation with God, the ability to be faithful to the end, this is all because of Jesus. See, it's our union, our relationship with Jesus that begins when we trust solely in him, that is what assures us of our future, but that is what gives us uh, our present situation as well, that there's nothing, nothing in this life that can fracture me there's nothing can shatter me those hours of trial these these days of tribulation no matter what i go through nothing can fracture me nothing can truly harm me because my name is written in his book not by anything that I do, i've done i know what happens when i'm going up there by what i've done i know what's in those books what's waiting for me but i know more than anything else my name is in his book because of him and so nothing Nothing can harm me. This is the, the future that is painted for Christians. Uh, one of the commentators I, I, I read, he, he put this beautifully. He says, if you are a believer in Jesus, this, this whole chapter is describing your future. Satan has gone from the scene. Christ is reigning on earth. You will be raised from the dead to sin no more. No satanic deception, no satanic temptation. In the presence of Christ, you will do justice and serve as a priest of God. This is what you were made to do. You were created to enjoy God as king in God's land, in free obedience to God's law, uncontaminated, undefiled, unsullied, no devil prowling around like a roaring lion. Freedom, joy, righteousness. As he says, if you're a believer in Jesus, this is describing our future. And yet, because our names are written down, because the basis of all of this is because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf, this is the reality, this is the identity that we live out of right now. Think about all the things that we let identify us. Think about all the things that give us purpose and value and worth in this life, and yet there's nothing more secure, there's nothing more completely saying who we are than the fact that my name is is written in Jesus' book because of what Jesus has done on my behalf. That I can live out of this joy and righteousness and freedom that is to come. I can live out of that now because of the reality that Jesus has already accomplished this on my behalf. That those who are faithful, their names are in the book now. So my greatest identity in life, for life, and life to come is that my name is written in his book when he gets to the last bit of the reality to come, is there are people around us whose names are not written in the book of life. I mean, the most horrifying image in this entire chapter is we have this thousand year reign of Jesus. And then after that, Satan is loosed and people immediately flock to Satan. Away from the only worthy God. Away from this only one who has power and authority and worth and to something lesser, to something that can only bring doom. I mean, maybe it's just me, but it's hard not to, to personalize this. As I think about the people who are around me, the people who are near me in life, whose names are not written in this book, who have not turned to Jesus as the only one for identity, for life now and to come. That is, as I read this chapter, it's, it's hard not to think about those people. And yet it is as well the reminder that God has us exactly where we are for a reason. That the neighborhood you're in, the school that you go to, the place that you work, all of that is what God has ordained for you to be in from before the foundations of the world. We, it's a reminder that God is patient in his judgment, that this has not yet happened yet. We read elsewhere in the Bible that God wishes for no one to perish. And we, we know as well that, that that he is working through his people to bring people who are far away near to him. We've said that all of the book of Revelation acts as this reminder that we are called to tell the world about Jesus, about the hope that is found in him now, about the only hope, the only basis of which we have to stand on that judgment day is whether or not our name is written in his book. And no place is that call to tell others about Jesus more clear than here as we see the result of what happens for those whose names are not in his book. And, and I know that this is difficult. I, I know that it takes boldness. I, I know that we don't always have the words. I, I know that it's difficult and we don't want to upset people and we don't want to overstep uh, uh, or don't want to step on people's toes. I, I totally get all that. But I also think that there's there never been an easier ask. There's never been an easier opportunity to point people to Jesus than, than this time of year that we, we have opportunities to, to bring people along with you to church in a way that's that's less invasive, that's easier to ask people. I mean, coming to church isn't some magical fix. It's not as though, we just, oh, just got to get them in those doors and then the name will be in the book or there's some aura here that's gonna purify people. Well, it's not that at all. But it's an easy opportunity to start a conversation with people, to start being alongside those that God has put near you as neighbors, as coworkers, as friends, as family, as people in your class to just come alongside of them and really simply say, hey, I care about you a lot. I would love for you to join me at Christmas Eve. Or, hey, you're an important person in my life and we have a tradition every year at this time of year. would love for you to join in with me in this tradition. Christmas Eve, we go to church. Would invite you to come. It's it's such an easy opportunity to invite people to hear of the only hope that we have. I mean, after all, what we celebrate at Christmas is that as Jesus came to this world, that that is what brings about hope for this world. And so what better time than Christmas to help us to see these people who are around our lives who don't have this firm foundation, this certain hope, what better time than Christmas to help them see the only hope that's found in Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for all that you've revealed to us about who you are, about what you've done, about what it is that you are doing. And Father, while it's, it's difficult to understand, while it's hard to make sense of when we hold it uh, alongside all of the rest of what you revealed to us, we, we know that we are waiting eagerly the, for the day that it becomes clear. But more so, we are waiting eagerly, eagerly for the day that we see you clearly. We are grateful for the fact that we do not stand on the basis of what's written in those books, of what we've done for, there's only one possible result if we're standing on our own two feet, but we are grateful for the work of your son, for the work that you've done on our behalf, that it's by you that we are able to endure, that we're able to stand, that we are able to find forgiveness at all. Help us as we saw in in what we believe as a church. Help us to hear of what it is that you're doing. Help us to expect your coming. Help us in this Advent season of waiting to be motivated to live, to be ever faithful for you. To serve others uh, inside the church doubt. But more so than anything else, to help people see the only source of salvation, the only source of hope, the only future that there is. And that is in you. So it's to you and you alone we pray.